Welcome to the Value Investor TV podcast. This is the podcast that helps you grow your wealth and become financially dependent. My name is Petco and my partner, Hari. Hey, guys. Um, today, we're going to be talking about how uh, the Wall Street or the investment community, professional investment community generally, um, deals with um, the uncertainties and the risks involved in investing. And what we do as value investors, retail value investors do. And we just wanted to be, uh, kind of fully, fully transparent about our strategy and how that is different from institutional professional, um, investors in this episode. Okay. Before we do, uh, Hari, quick disclaimer. Yeah. So this is the uh, Value Investor TV podcast. We are here to educate and entertain you on the concepts behind value investing. We are not um, financial advisors. We don't know your specific financial situation. So before making any investment decisions, please uh, consult with a financial advisor. Um, Sounds good. Okay. Um, so Hari, this is, you know, we're picking up uh, from what we, where we left off in the last episode. Last episode, you know, we talked about how um, kind of the basic ideas of value investing and how that in itself de-risks us yep. in in these trying times. Um, in this episode, we're gonna we want to talk about how kind of Wall Street and professional investing community does it. Uh, we'll start with that, and uh, we'll follow that up with more detailed description of how we, as retail value investors, deal with this uh, this risk. Yeah. So, um, Hari, could you start us off with the Wall Street uh, as aspect of this? Yeah. So the you know the the interesting thing about it is, um, you know, we've we've talked about this before about how hedge funds and Wall Street have different incentives for how they they manage money, right? And one of their incentives is to make sure that there there are no losses, significant losses at any given point because that's how capital leaves their uh their funds, right? Is if you do poorly for a year or two, people will uh sell your fund or sell your hedge, you know, hedge fund or and then put their money somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And the challenge with that is that so they want to uh reduce their risk and they how they define risk, which is uh, price going up and down, right? And so um, they want companies that are very steady kind of growers, or they want you know dividends, you know dividend paying companies, or what they really want is um, they will do things that you know are are you know almost kind of automatic type investments. So, um, and this is not true of just Wall Street, but there are a lot of retail people who do this as well. So one of the things that they do is they will put a stop loss on uh, uh, a, an asset that they own. And so what that means is, you know, there are different types of um, uh, ways to purchase stocks. You can buy uh, uh, long, which means um, you can also place a limit order. Um, and so what the, the, the market you know, the buy long uh, essentially does is it gives you the market price, whatever the market price is. Um, that's what is, you know, your share count. And then they subtract that from your uh, cash balance and then give you shares. Um, but a, a limit order essentially says, I want to buy a certain stock below a certain price. So if it drops below this price, this is how many shares I want and buy it. Um, but then you can also place a 
stop loss order or a stop limit order, which essentially says if the stock price goes below this this dollar amount, 5% my, below my purchase price, I can sell out and I won't lose any further in the case of a huge down, you know, down swing. So there's a couple of interesting things about this. One, you're not guaranteed to get uh, your stock sold at that price. So if the stock price is at $100, is that what you purchase at? And you put a stop limit on 95 and the market isn't open and the price drops to $80 a share, they will just sell your shares at $80 a share because it's below the $95 amount, right? Mm-hmm. And so you don't actually know what the price is when you do it. It may be close to 95 it may not. But but really, the the... The, the real problem with this kind of mentality is that you're you're trying to limit your loss, right? Well, the way that you limit your loss is doing your homework, right? And thinking about your investment based on what does this look like five years from now? If the stock price goes down by 20%, well, that may be an opportunity to buy, assuming that everything in your investment thesis is the same, right? And so yeah. a stop limit or something like that doesn't really protect you from you know any sort of, you know, these kind of wild swings in the stock price or anything like that. What it does is it sells your stock at a loss. And I guarantee you it'll sell it at a loss because... uh, (laughs) That's by definition what stop loss is. Yeah, exactly. And so (laughs) theoretically it could limit your losses, but that's not what what we're doing, right? When we buy a company, we want to own it for a significant amount of time, right? We're not buying it for three months or six months or a year like people in Wall Street, like a lot of retail investors are, who are very short-term in in their thinking. And so stop losses... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I want to uh, kind of maybe... I I think I know what you're going to say to this question, but I want to still play devil's advocate here for our listeners. So what if, you know, this is all under under the assumption that your hypothesis, your investment thesis is still true. For example, let's say you found a stock, you thought it was going this way, course a and then it suddenly you know it, it it pivots and goes to course b and you realize that and so you at that point realize okay this company might not be where i think it might have been and then you put a stop loss possibly to um, in case that option b is is the wrong path how would you think about that situation well so course a should be the 99% course, right? That should be, you should be very certain about how likely a co- company is going to do, right? And that is what that moat is actually there to protect you from, right? Is if you, if you assess the moat of say Disney, right? Cause I use Disney as, cause they basically have an impenetrable moat. I mean, even mm-hmm. though Star Wars is now terrible. Um, that's that's a, an aside. They can ruin. A side note. Asterix. Asterix. Yeah, they can ruin Star Wars and still make money. But regardless, regardless, that's probably true. Yeah, um, they have an impenetrable moat, and so that moat protects their free cash flow, and that is what you want to pay attention to. Right? Is when I buy this company, there are two things that are going to to protect me. One is the risk. That is that is of disruption of their business model. The other is the price. So if I pay a significantly uh, discounted price to the valuation, there shouldn't be a lot of downside risk. I mean that you know from a price standpoint. 
And then from a business risk standpoint, there shouldn't be a lot of business risk because I have done my homework, right? So what you really should be paying attention to when you do this is you will make mistakes about assessments of moats, right? And if that is true, then yes, selling out is actually the appropriate thing to do. If you were wrong about your assessment, which everyone will do, I mean, it's not an uncommon thing, um, and you will get better about it over time, is assessing the, the, the risk is, is very important, right? The second part of that is not paying too much money for it. If you do, do, do those two things correctly, I guarantee you, you will do well over a long period of time. I guarantee mm-hmm. it. Because that's all value investing is, right? Is making sure that the, the um, you know, that there is, you're limiting your downside risk by knowing what the business does and not pay, overpaying for it because that's the other way that you, you lose money. If you can yeah. accomplish those two things, then really everything else doesn't is, is irrelevant, right? You shouldn't be worried about stop loss risk and, you know, trying to, because a- anything that you're doing related to, uh, you know, anything that's more complicated than making a decision about buying and selling is is probably a bad idea in investing, period, right? No, no owner of a business would worry about stop loss, right? Do you think Jeff Bezos would um, sell out his shares of Amazon if the stock price goes down by 5% or 10%? <laughs> he right. might have to pay out his wife. Yeah, well, that's true. But <laughs> he's just giving her shares, so... Uh, but yeah, you don't have to think about those things, right? You you yeah. sell based on, um, well, maybe I need money, right? There's a lot of different yeah. reasons to sell. Tax. But, yeah. you know, you don't just dump your shares because, oh my God, the business is going to crash, right? Um, and so investing what? is really thinking about that from the perspective of the owner, right? And so yeah. if you have that mentality, then your ownership, I mean, look, nobody... Uh, who does well in investing thinks about three to six months from now. And if you can think beyond a year to two years to three years, then, you know, as we've said, when we assess that moat, what we are looking for is what is this business going to be like in five to 10 years? Cause that is when mm-hmm. we would be selling the business, not six months from now. Right. Yeah. One uh, thing that did come up uh, in my discussions, just day to day talking about investing is, a lot of people will buy a company and then it drops. It happens all the time. The price drops yep. from where you thought, oh, this is the bottom of the bottom. This is not, it's never going to go down below this. And then it turns out the, the second after you buy it, it starts going down. <laughs> I'm sure all of us yep. can, can have that experience. And you realize at some point it's keep, it's continuing to go down. And so at that point in time, you think to yourself, oh, if this is going to go down further, let me just sell right here and then buy it when it goes down further. What do you think about that idea? <clears throat> yeah, so that's basically speculation, right? At that point, you're now you're no longer investing, you're speculating because you're essentially saying, I know what the trajectory of the price is going to be. And so based on that, I'm going to sell and then buy at a lower price <laughs> or, you know... I, I think it's trading. It, it, it is. It's trading at that point. And so whenever you start thinking about that, you what you're doing is, you know, and here's the, the, the crazy part about the human mind. The human mind can convince you of doing some stupid things, right? And, and <laughs> all in the name of being logical, right? That you think you're being logical. You think you're doing something intelligent or whatever. So 
here's one rule that I think Monish Pabrai uh, said in uh, his Dondo Investor, or he may have said it to Guy Spear in a book. If you buy a stock and the stock price goes down, you have to hold it for two years. You cannot sell it for uh, within two years. Yeah, so, I remember Guy Spear talk, talked about that. That's just one of his kind of core principles in investing. And it's actually a pretty good way to think about it, right? Is that, well, I can't sell this. Um, so now I have to, one, it, it all goes back to what did my, you know, what did I do for my preparation for before I bought this stock, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you start doing the preparation before the stock, then you start figuring out a lot of things about <clears throat> where the business is going and stuff like that. We've talked to, talked about a couple of companies here, you know, maybe even more than a couple of just fantastic businesses like NVR and, you know, Southwest Airlines where these things just print money. They're not very expensive. You can buy the stock and um, there's a strong buyback uh, program that limit your downside risk. So you have two companies. I've just named you two that you can do your own research and figure out if those are, you know, you understand their businesses and stuff like that. So then if you have those two, now you have something to compare against, Right. So I now find another company that I think is cheap that has no share buyback program that pays a dividend or something else has very limited in the way of growth prospects, you know, wh- whatever it is. Yeah. How does it compare to a great business that I know? Well, if if it doesn't compare favorably, then I don't buy the other stock. I buy more Southwest more Airlines or more and more of yeah. Yeah. Right? So Yeah, yeah. And and if Southwest Airlines dropped in price and you really liked it at $50 a share, well, then you're going to love it at $40 a share and you're going to love it even more at 30, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the, the idea that you can speculate by selling out and then, you know, waiting for a lower price and then buying, you're trading at that point, right? And so yeah. we uh, want the, to be inte- fact- intelligent investors, which means we don't speculate, right? Yeah. The fact of the matter is it could work. It could work, but it could also not work because <laughs> you know that's the fundamental that's the fundamental issue with speculation. It could work time to time, but what we want to do is we want to strike every time. Right. I, I could and also run with a burning match through a fireworks factory. It could work, Becco. It could work <laughs> until it doesn't, and then I, you know, blow myself up. So yeah, that's the concept that we should always be thinking. Right? Is never. We want to protect against the downside, and the downside here is you selling out because of it's a good business is a terrible idea, right? It's a, <laughs> yeah, it's still yeah. a good business. All I care about is the cash flow of the business. Everything else will take care of itself, right? Yeah. And I think we've gi- they- given you enough tools at this point to know how to value enough of a business that valuation should not be your problem, right? You should be able to value it, put a price, you know, take a, a margin of safety on that and then always buy below that price. So if the price is below that price, then you're good to go, right? That's that's yeah. how we should be thinking. Yeah, exactly. So that we, we kind of digressed a little bit, but um, you know, we were going down a list of things that Wall Street or professional investors do. And the yeah. first thing we talked about was stop loss. Another thing that a lot of uh, these professional investors will do is, you know, hedging and buying options and things like that. What are your thoughts around there? 
Yeah, so we'll do first. We'll do talk about options, and then we'll do some hedging discussion because they're sure. they're related but not always the same. So, um, you know, so with options, you have the ability to buy, um, you know, to buy at a certain price. You know, if it hits a, a certain price, then the option becomes uh, available to you to buy. So let's say you have an option to buy at sixty dollars a share. The stock price is trading at fifty-five dollars a share. And then, you know, you the stock price goes up to $65 a share, and you get to pocket the 65 minus 60, um, so $5 times however many shares you, you bought, right? So that's part of this options contract idea. And the idea is that I can do this without losing any money, um, <clears throat> because I'm, I, I only owe a fee to the person I'm buying the options from, so they they may charge you like a hundred dollars for every hundred shares, um, you know, for the right with for the option to buy above the price of sixty dollars, right? And that that way there's limited. The only risk you're, of your capital is the the hundred dollars per share that you have or hundred dollars total that you owe this uh, options uh, person. So. That is that is the kind of thinking where speculation about the price is very dangerous, right? And so you're now speculating about the price being going up in the next month or two months or three months or six months, right? And time is not your friend in in these in you know is it, time is your friend in the long term. It is it is very dangerous in the short term because the price volatility can affect you. In what may seem like a sure bet that this thing will have good earnings in a month or two and then. Uh, you know, and then Trump sends out a tweet saying, you know, we're going to raise tariffs on China and then the stock price plummets, right? That's how you lose money. And you can make a lot of these bets, but that's what you're doing is you're betting on the price going up, right? And there's a, that's a distinct difference from what we do, which is buying ownership stake in a company and just sitting on that stake for a long time. Because it, I can tell you with certainty that in five years, a good business will do better, what I can't tell you is in three months if a good business will do better price-wise, right? So that that is yeah. where we are, you know, we are arbitraging, arbitraging based on time and using that as our a risk assessment. Now, there is some room for using options and, you know, I think this is a very advanced idea, but um, you can buy long-term options, like if it's two or three years down the line, you know, with a very close, you know, you know that you think that the stock price will be much higher than that. I just wouldn't do anything less than like six months or a year. Um, you know, in terms of that that call option model. Now, that being said, I don't do anything with uh, options. I won't touch them. You know, because I think they're the. Uh, um, you know, I, I, my time horizon is even longer than two or three years. So, I, I'm willing to hold a stock for a minimum of five years. And, you know, when I know a business is good, I, I will wait that long before I sell out. So um, I, I, I don't yeah. touch options. And I, I, I think in, in, in the end of the day, they're basically speculation. So, um, yeah, when the time horizon gets short, I think there's a gradient of when the time horizon gets short, you're sort of getting into the territory of trading. When, when the time, time horizon gets longer and longer, you're getting into the territory of investing, and that's right. where that's where you sit. That's where we sit as right. value investors. Okay, and then you want to talk about um, talk to talk to us about hedging. Yeah, and so hedging is the other 
it's you know hedging can use options as part of its vehicle but essentially what you're saying is in in a hedge fund assessment the way that they do is they'll go long on a certain stock or a business or industry and they'll go short on another with the idea being that if one profits the other one can it'll be profiting at the expense of another so think of it this way like you would go long on Amazon and short on JCPenney, right? With the idea being that Amazon will do, do well um, at the expense of JCPenney, right? Now, that that logic can hold true, and maybe you're right about this, you know, that assessment, but what if JCPenney does well also? Well, then you're, you know, you're losing money on this short sell that you made on JCPenney when you, what you could have done is just put more money onto Amazon, right? Or, you know, God forbid that you would just short JCPenney all the way, right? I, I don't, you know, I don't go short on any stock. I don't, you know, I think it's just silly to do so because the maximum return that you can get on a, a short sell is a hundred percent. Whereas if you go long and you own a business, it can the limit the limit to your upside is is not you know is unlimited, right? You can stock price can go up a thousand times. So there, I don't see a whole lot of benefit. But the reason that hedge funds do this is they get a short term benefit from uh, from doing so because their their stock price is less uh, their prices are less volatile uh, to their um, when they report quarterly uh things to their investors uh, yep. and so and you know let's be clear hedge funds don't make any money right they have you know they don't even beat the s&p 500 99 percent of the time so you're not really benefiting by doing this right these are all strategies that other people who seem to think that they're smart will tell you is a good way to do it right but we want to be intelligent <clears throat> excuse me intelligent in the ben graham sense of the word which is we don't speculate. We don't do things that, you know, like short selling. We focus on what are the prospects of the business and owning that business for the long haul will will bring those prospects to fruition. Yeah. One thing I will mention on these like these strategies, stop loss options and hedging and things like that. It is it is I think important to mention this is something that you mentioned previously, but it is important to mention that these are these are tools that they use, and 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 it is tools that they use partly because of the institutional mandate that they're under. Yeah. Right. They're they're. It's not like you know, you know they 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 are sort of confined into a box as hedge fund because you have to report quarterly quarterly earnings and quarterly results and things like that, or else if you don't do that, there's going to be a massive capital flight out of your fund. And so there's that limitation that is there, there's an inherent limitation to the industry, the, the hedge fund industry or kind of professional money management industry. Um, so th- that's important to keep in mind when we are when we're thinking about these different techniques that yep. they use. And to your point, Hari, that's a major benefit. This is, you know, oftentimes unspoken benefit uh that retail investors have because we don't have that confinement. We can, we can leverage anything. We can leverage our time and not be confined to these set of circumstances that these hedge funds or investment communities are under. Right. Um, so I think that's important to highlight there. 
Okay, uh, so that was kind of the first part about the first part of the episode where we wanted to kind of go through some of the techniques that Wall Street investing community generally uses to deal with times, you know, tr- some tr- trying times. Uh, next, we want to talk to you about how Hari and myself um, traverse these 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 uh, this rough rough patches of investing yep. uh, periods. So, Hari, could you uh, talk uh, talk us through a little bit about your strategy? Yeah, so I, I want to talk about it from two sides. One of them is the stock price goes down. The other side is the stock price goes up, right? So you sure. make an investment decision and you know you buy in, and we've talked a little bit about this already, uh, you buy it at $50 a share and then the stock price goes down to $40 a share. Well, you had the business valued at $110 a share. So there's a 50 plus percent margin of safety and now the price is down to $40 a share. So there is... And, you know, really nothing has changed. So you think to yourself, well, I've got a little bit of money. I'll go buy some more shares, right? And that's perfectly reasonable, right? Because as we've said, we don't know what the stock price is going to do, right? We can't predict that. We have no idea if it's going to go up or down in the short term. What we can predict is the long term, right? Which is three, four, five years from now. But the challenge is that there's always this mindset that, okay, I'm just going to wait a little longer because I think it'll go down even further, right? Or I'm going to go, it's going to go down even further. Um, so I, I'm just going to wait, right? And then that you you miss your boat, you know, the boat kind of leaves the dock and now you, the stock price kind of goes back up, right? So the way that I handle this and I think is kind of important is, you know, when the stock price is a certain price, $50 a share, I buy in. I only allocate about, you know, if I know that I'm going to spend, you know, $10,000 on this investment, mm-hmm. I'll only allocate about half of that money, you know, to that first tranche of buying, right? And I'll wait. And what will happen is the price may go down, the price may go up. And this is where the emotional control of, of this is important, is if the price goes down, I'll allocate another half of what is remaining, right? And so I'll buy a little bit more. Um, And I'll try and keep it, but I will try and ensure that I never buy above that, you know, $55 threshold, which is what I set as the, you know, 50% margin of safety, right? That's what I use as my margin of safety. So if it goes above 55, I stop buying. And if that means that I had $5,000, and that was the only amount of money that I put into the business. That's all I get, right? And I miss out on opportunities like that all the time because the stock price went up, and I just it it is you know too close to my you know it's above the margin of safety price, so I don't buy it. Yep. Right. So here here's a question for you, Hari. Yeah. So this is where I think staying disciplined to your margin of safety is really important, yeah. but there are temptation that lurks when. The price goes up. Maybe let's say your, let's say your margin of safety dollar was fifty, fifty dollars per per share, yep. and you bought it at forty. You, as soon as it, it dropped, you bought it at forty nine. Let's say, yep. And then it went up to fifty one. What do you do there? Like, there's some gray area, don't you think? 
or no? Absolutely. So this is actually the hardest thing for me personally, is that the yeah. stock price goes up and I start saying, "Oh man, I have I only bought half of what I wanted to buy," and I'm I. This is what I struggle with the most, right? Is mm-hmm. trains leaving the station? It's never going to be below that fifty dollars. You're going to mo- lose out, right? And then, sure enough, I'll go and spend over the margin of safety price, mm-hmm. and then the stock price goes down, and I look like a moron because I've wasted my capital on this. So I'll give you a great example of this. There was a company called MWI Veterinary. Um, they are now no longer publicly traded. They were bought out, but um, I had a price per share of around $65 a share, and they were trading at around 80 The stock price dropped to like 75 and to 70 and I was like, man, this is a fantastic business. They're just growing really well. They sell like products, veterinary products to, you know, uh, to mm-hmm. vet clinics and stuff like that, and they're basically like a supply chain for vet clinics. And I was like, this is so awesome. It, you know, they just print money. Nobody else does this as well as they do, blah, 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 blah. But the price never got below 65 mm. And then the stock price went up to 200 <laughs> And, you know, I had valued them at about $140 a share, right? Mm. 200 was way over my speculative price, right? Mm. I, I could never expect them to go up to 200 But that's what they were bought out for by... Think VCA, the vet uh, care associate, you know, the anyway, regardless of whoever bought it out, I don't even remember anymore. Um, yeah. It was one of those things where I just remember, man, I should, you know, this is a great business and I just missed out. Yeah. And that's fine. And that's fine. You're going to make mistakes like that, right? Because for every one of those that you do, you're going to also have the other side of the, the coin where. It was you know seventy dollars a share, and you're like, yeah, but my price is sixty five dollars or sixty dollars, and then it never hits that, or or then you know you buy at seventy, and then it plummets to fifty, and you're like, man, I look like an idiot, right? And then when you reassess the business, you know your margin of safety was more like you know wasn't one hundred and forty dollars or one hundred and thirty was more like one hundred and ten, right? Yeah, and so that that gap in you know from what you paid to what it's worth now shrunk well below what you thought it was right that's why we do the margin of safety right we want a very significant discount to the price that we're going to pay 50% or more mm-hmm. and what's easy to do is you start reading an, a quarterly report or you see, read the conference call and then you don't do a full assessment of your investment thesis and you say man they really crushed it this quarter everything is super awesome the stock price is going up I'm going to miss the boat. And that's why you buy in at a higher price than you should. Right? Yeah. And this happens a lot and it's hard. Uh, I I will tell you that is the harder thing to do than actually watch your stock price go down and see, you know, see this big red number on your investment. That for me is not a big deal. I look at that and I'm Mm. like, whatever, I'll buy more. Mm. Right? I'm, I'm less problematic for me, but everybody's different. Right? And we all think about things differently. So, mm. but you always, the, the solution to both problems though is still the same thing, which is don't react emotionally. Look at your investment thesis, go back to your facts, read the conference call transcripts, read the annual reports, read the quarterly reports, reassess your thesis. You know, if you need, uh, you know, somebody to kind of be the bear, you know, you know, 
bears a thesis on your investment, you know, go and read stock twits or call somebody that you know who can do this. You know, just you know, play devil's advocate for you. You know, all of those things are what you should do before you ever hit the button, right, on on your brokerage account. Because <clears throat> it's really easy to do that, right? It's super easy to log in, you know, click just a few click buttons. buy. Buy, and then you've got a bunch yeah. of shares, right, that you paid too much for. So that's how, how I, I we try and do this, and it's not – that is, to me, is – way harder than assessing a moat for a business. It's way harder than, um, you know, doing a valuation model. It's way harder than anything else that we do, right? Because it's, mm. it's not a rational thing. That's the problem with it is I can't just logic my way out of thinking, you know, these things. What you have to do is step away from the situation, step back, maybe sleep on it, read up on what you were doing, and then, you know, kind of come to an a, a agreement with both pros and cons and that kind of stuff. Right, but mm-hmm. this is part of why value investors, um, if they're able to control their emotions, are able to do so fantastically well. Right? Yeah, I mean that that really points to what you know Warren Buffett has always been talking about, which is this game is not a, a game of emotional. This game is not a game of intelligence. This is a game of intelligent or emotional intelligence. Right. Being able to control your emotions and staying disciplined to your uh, to your thesis. And to your point, that's, I mean, I find, I find myself doing that all the time. You know, the, yeah. the, the fear of missing out, the fear of missing out is a, it's a major, it's a major thing <laughs> that a lot of people struggle with. Yeah, it, it, it is definitely difficult. It does get easier with time as you start, you know, but, but the best way to do this is prepare yourself before it ever happens, right? You have to have those difficult, um, you know, moments where you you look at your investment thesis, try to poke holes in your own investment thesis. You do all of that before the stock price plummets or the stock price goes up. You need to know all the ins and outs of, you know, what could risk this, you know, this investment or what could, you know, promote it. And then once you do that, you've already had all of this discussion and then your emotion is no longer the, you know, overriding force, Right. Yeah. It's your logic and your reasoning that comes back to the, you know, to the, to the forefront, right? And then you, that way you yeah. can have a discussion with other people, um, or, or I'm sorry, have a, a good decision when you make, you know, uh, make your investment uh, thesis, right? Because I think mm-hmm. that's the way people lose money is not thinking it all through. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's the, it, yeah, it's hard. It's very hard, but we need to be very, very disciplined, and I think. I think it's the intellectual kind of laziness that gets us, you know, thinking yeah. it through, thinking about different scenarios, or critically thinking about pros and cons and the bull case and the bear case, both cases. I think the, that exercise is intellectually challenging at times. And I think it's just a lot of times we, myself including, fall into um, the victim of intellectual laziness. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think what we want to do as investors is we want to limit the number of mistakes that we make that are within our control, right? There are certain types of mistakes on investments that we can't know about, right? I can't know about what technology or what thing will disrupt what investment that I'm making now. I can try, right? I can try and mitigate that as much as possible. But what I can control is my emotional decision-making, and if I can control that, then 
that is how I limit the mistakes that I make, right? And, you know, as Buffett has said and Munger have said, you don't need to make a lot of, you know, have a lot of wins in your lifetime to, to, to make a ton of money, right? You need only a few good ones. And then, um, and, and so that's, that's why we want to, when we make decisions, we need to make them uh, control our, our emotions and get out of the, the ones that we made that were mistakes quickly, right? Because there's the flip side to it, right? Which is, I made a mistake and I don't want to admit it to myself, right? And so I just hang on to a bad company, right? That's, that's the other side. That's another, that's the whole other side of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we talk about that one, you know, I I think it's a, it's an important thing to understand is, and it happens actually on both sides, right? The stock price goes way up and you're like, man, this is a fantastic business. You know, they're going to go to a, you know, a trillion dollar company and you know, all that stuff. And, but you're like, yeah, but it's way over the the price, you know, the margin of safety price, Mm -hmm. the actual valuation Mm -hmm. that I have. It's trading 30% above that or 50% above that. You know, there's risk now. If I, by holding this, I'm going to lose my money. Right. And the other side of it is that you made a mistake. You didn't actually assess the business correctly. So you have to have the ability to step away from whatever you did and, and, um, and look at something critically and say, no, this was a mistake. So, um, you know, I, I think the best example I can give because it still hurts is, uh, you know, I bought a company <sighs> called Francesca's, um, you know, <sighs> that I've talked through Becco with. And, yeah. you know, uh, I don't, fortunately, I hope Becco didn't follow me into this disaster. But um, <laughs> so it turns out that I know nothing about women's clothing, despite, uh, you know, my, uh, you know, Two daughters. My my, you know, fashionableness. I, <laughs> I I actually literally know nothing about this. So, one, I I looked at a business that had a very high return on capital that was seemingly growing very well, and I ignored the fact that they had had a lot of turnover in their management and inventory. The people who were you know their buyers for this store, and and. You know, one of the things that I didn't realize is how they had lost their customer, right? The customer had just given up on the business. They had gone in there for a full year and a year and a half and said, I go there. I used to love this store. I found nothing. And I heard that and I'm like, nah, that'll be fine. Right. And so you bought into that company and, you know, the crazy thing about that was it went from, I bought it. I have actually owned it twice. The first time I bought it, it went from $10 to $15 a share. And I sold it because I was like, this is, you know, it's pretty good. I don't think it's worth more than that. And then I bought it again at $10 and I said, oh, it'll, you know, it'll balloon up to $20, $25 a share again, like it used to be. Uh, And it went down to like six before, you know, uh, I I finally realized like, look, they're, everything about this company is just falling apart. And it took me a long time to understand that. And then it went from $6 a share to like 30 cents a share very quickly after that. Right. And they basically cratered and they had no debt. They had all of these other things that I just didn't really pay attention to. But, but the core fundamental part of it was they had no moat. And I, I couldn't see that because I didn't, didn't understand how, people just wouldn't even walk into the store anymore. Right. And, and so yeah. it takes a that, lot of insight to be able to see that you've made a mistake, right? That's hard. 
It's very difficult. It's very, very difficult. And that's something, that's something that, you know, I alluded to earlier where let's say the price is going down. You think that the company's going down option A. Now this, this Francesca company is going down option B. And so having that, having that insight to say, okay, this is going down option B, which is a wrong path. Yep. I need to get out. Yeah. That's a very, very difficult to think, thing to do if you don't have that insight. And I think it goes back to what we always talk about is stay in your, stay in your circle of competence. Yep. Um, broaden the competence, broaden the scope of competence, but try to stay within your, your, your scope of competence so that you understand the business inside and out and you have the insight into the business. Well, and I, and um, I think it's important there. The thing that I... So just to tell, you know, to finish the story and give you, sure. here are the mistakes that I made. One, you, you already mentioned, I was outside of my circle of competence. Two, my assessment of the moat was wrong, right? And if I had, if, you know, when I went back and read my investment thesis, my investment thesis was based on the fact that they had a moat, that their customers were loyal and would come back to them. And that was not true. And there was lots of evidence that it wasn't true, but that was what I wrote on a piece of paper. And maybe it was true at the time I wrote it. I don't think it was. I just was ignoring that evidence. Mm-hmm. And three was I also paid too much, right? I, I made an assessment of, you know, cash flows were going to be sustainable. They had no debt. They had all of these things that they were going to be growing their business, even though for the last several quarters they hadn't, right? And so, you know, one of the things that I learned from that mistake, and this is important, you know, also as your growth as an investor is you're going to make mistakes, learn from them. I, you know, I actually only lost about 20% of my money off of this thing, which is, you know, very fortunate because it could have been a lot worse, um, is how do I avoid this in the future? Right. And so the way I have kind of grown from that mistake is thinking a lot more about the moat, right. You know, um, I think I made this mistake you know, and sold out this company before we started the podcast. And it actually yep. influenced heavily how the podcast, you know, the topics of the podcast and why I focus so much more on the moat, uh, you know, you know, it, to protect us, you know, going forward. And this is not the first or the last time that I'm going to make that mistake. But, you know, being smart about your, you know, assessments of the moat is really where this, you, you protect yourself, right? And that's how you lose you lose money is when you over, you know you don't think you're think through the problem and you don't pay attention to new information as it comes in the door right and mm. it's really important that you know when you do make these mistakes that you you learn from them you identify them and then you start adding to those things to your checklist so that your um, assessment really is better the next time right that's mm. that's how i think you you become successful as an investor yeah it is really interesting that you know we have a checklist of many different things that we look at but ultimately i mean one of the one of the one of the most important things that we have to look at to your point is competitive edge yeah. competitive advantage the moat like that is the the centerpiece of all of this right the all the everything of investing is competitive advantage and how well you understand that competitive advantage it sounds like well and i think it also what it does is it's easy to find businesses that are cheap right for a very long time that's all i looked for was this is the price this is the margin of safety uh price i below that price i buy right and 
when I started really paying attention more to the way Charlie Munger thinks about it, and and Warren Buffett does too, you know, it was really about what is the quality of the business itself. Because if I know that that is there, then my risk is is mitigated by just the fact that the business is super solid, right? Mm-hmm. And so, as long as I don't wait, pay too much for it, then I'm good. So I spend almost all of my time looking for good businesses. And then I start thinking about everything else. And if I can mm. find a good business, then I'm in good shape. It seems like your order changed. The first thing is, or before, before this transition, it was, let's look at the price first and figure out the business. Yep. Whereas, whereas now, it's more of, let's look at the business first, collect a few things that, a few companies that are really solid, and then look at the price. The order right. flipped. Yeah. And it, it absolutely did. And after I did that, what it does is I, I have a list of companies that I found that are great businesses, and then I wait for their price to drop. And when mm-hmm. the price drops, now I'm ready to go pick them up, right? And maybe so, it's just for context, it might be interesting for listeners to hear this. Has your returns gotten much better after you made that switch? So, so... What I would say is it's hard to assess that because I've done it for only about three years. Um, and, you know, the investments that I've made have... So I have gotten much better returns, but I don't want to attribute that purely to that, you know, that I'm... I mean, that could be luck, right? That's what I'm trying to say. Is sure. my returns are better, but that's not because I'm suddenly, you know, this is the... I'm better at this or whatever. It's, I could be just lucky, right? So I, mm. I think... Um, Time will tell, huh? Yeah, in seven years, I'll let you know. How, how to <laughs> That sounds good. That sounds good. Okay. Yeah, I think that was wealth of knowledge that we... Uh, you know, the wealth of knowledge that you shared with us in this episode. Um, is there anything else? Was that the, the topics? Is that all the topics that we wanted to cover this episode? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I just want to say that, you know, this is, these are the parts of value investing that really only experience and time on the field can help you solve. So for those of you who are out there who've been listening to us for a while, but just haven't felt comfortable with putting money down, you know, because you're still learning the basics and stuff like that. What I would tell you is you need to learn this aspect of it to. And the only way to really do that is actually put to buy, you know, buy into a company, right? When you find a good business and you find a good price, buy it, even if it's $100 or $500 or you know, however much money you're able to afford. Um, because once you put money down, then you become invested both from a cash perspective and an emotional perspective. And then that forces you to start following the business on you know, their quarterly reports, their conference calls, their annual reports, you know, and so on. Um, so if you're sitting on the sideline and thinking, well, I just need to learn a little bit more information or I need to, you know, w- you know, do, you know, read a little bit more or do whatever, I would, I would highly encourage you to take, set aside some amount of money that you can afford to, you know, not need for the next, you know, year or two years or whatever it is. And, and do that, to buy into stocks, because then it'll force you to start this discipline. Because then when you make mistakes and you lose $100, yeah, it's $100, but um, you're not doing it when you lose like 
$10,000 or $50,000, right? Yeah. You, you get those mistakes out of your system early, which I did not do. I can tell you that much. Even 15 years into my investing career, I was still making mistakes that I should have learned earlier, but you know, I didn't have the... I didn't have the benefit of my own podcast at the time. So, <laughs> so <laughs> nice. I like that one. <laughs> so now that you have, you've learned all of my mistakes. So you'll never make a mistake again. Right. <laughs> Everyone, <laughs> you're going to be Warren Buffett's out there just living in the wild. Yeah. Thanks to this podcast. By the way, <laughs> by the way, by listening to this podcast, you owe us 10% of your profits. So <laughs> Yeah, I want to I want to mention a couple of things there. The fact that, you know, a lot of it is I was thinking about this this other day. You know, investing is really about it's like a scientific method. You know, yep. when you do a scientific experiment, you set up a hypothesis, you have preliminary data that supports that hypothesis, and then you run the experiment and see what the hypo- to see if the hypothesis is, is true. Yep. And a lot of times these, you know, these research projects will take, I don't know, six months to two years. And so you wait it out. I think it's exactly the same thing in, in investing. Yep. Timeline, however, is more extended. You're talking about three to five year time horizon yep. to see that investment hypothesis through. And so what that told me was it is so advantageous to start this as soon as possible because yep. it just takes time for those investment hypotheses to pan out to see whether or not your hypothesis was correct or wrong. Right. Um, so time is one thing that I wanted to mention there. Well, and two is when you do pick a company, this is, this is something that happened to me. When you do pick a company to start initially, there's a lot of um, emotional attachment to your decision. Yep. Like this is the first thing, this is the first stock that you bought. First two, you know, first five stocks you buy, there's just tons of emotional attachment to these things because you put in a lot of effort into analyzing the companies, you've got to know the company, you've got to know the management, all these things, and you put the money down and you realize, oh, I made a mistake. And I think that's that's very, very difficult to come around, especially for beginners. And that's yep. something that I personally experienced. It's so difficult because it is your first baby. So yep. I just I would just caution people of falling into that trap. Well, and <clears throat> I just want to add one thing to your analogy, your first analogy about a uh, science experiment, right? And the scientific method, right? The thing that good researchers do, because, you know, Becco and I are both in a past life were, you know, researchers, good researchers will also do their homework before they make the hypothesis, right? And that's how they actually get, quote unquote, more successful experiments, is that they already know the outcome, you know, based on, you know, they're 95% sure or 90% sure, right, of the outcome, because they've actually understood what they're trying to do. That's why their hypothesis was good in the first place, as opposed to people who are just throwing stuff up against the wall and seeing what sticks, you know, they're going to get a success rate of 5, 10, 15%. Whereas if you actually know what you're thinking about and why, you know, what you're thinking about is based on a lot of knowledge that you've built up over time, then you're going to be more successful at it, right? And that's why, that's why this is such an important thing is we, even when you're investing $100 or you're investing $100,000 in that investment, it's the same decision making, right? It's the same process. It's not like I spend more time because I have more money. 
it's because I, I spend the same amount of time. That's why investing is so awesome, right? Is I make even more money when I have more money to put, invest, right? And so <laughs> you you all have the luxury of, you know, when you have small amounts of capital to be able to make mistakes and learn from them. When you have larger amounts of money and it's potentially your, uh, you know, something that you would use in the future for a retirement or put down for a mortgage, you obviously don't want to make mistakes, right? And so, because that, that has a meaningful impact on your own retirement or something like that. So think about it from the perspective of when I start now, I'm going to be making mistakes. That's fine. But the mistakes I make should be limited to, um, you know, ones that I, I, I can't control, right? Your emotions you can control, the amount of work you put into an investment you can control. If you do those two things, then the mistakes that happen outside of that, that's fine, right? But at least they're, you're eliminating most of them. Yeah, at least, you're, at least you are de-risking as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was really, I think, I thought that was really meaningful conversations that we had in this yeah. episode. Yeah. Um, I think those are some really good nuggets that you shared with us, Hari. All those experiences you've gathered, all the kind of the mistakes and mishaps. I think that's where we learn the most. And, you know, thank you for sharing it. Yeah, well, thanks for having the conversation with me. It was good to, you know, to discuss it because I think it's it's probably one of the ones, you know, if you picked up a book, an, inv- an investing book, most of them will have a lot of the things that we've already talked about. But I don't see a whole lot of stuff talking about controlling your emotions and things like that. Um, there aren't too much on that topic. So that's kind of why we wanted to talk about it today. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay, guys, uh, thank you for joining us. And if you have any questions about what we talked about today, or if you have any suggestions for future topics, uh, please send us an email at info at valueinvestor.org. Uh, info at valueinvestor.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple T- Apple Podcast or, or any of the podcast platforms that you use to listen to our episode. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for joining us again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you.